0: Grab a Bible, open an app, whatever it takes to get to Psalm 135. Psalm 135, we've lately been able to see the authors of these uh, psalms we've been preaching through, but this psalm, the author is absolutely uh, unknown, but the purpose of this uh, author is very clear. He means to renew the faith of Israel and to stir up gratitude in their hearts that will just overflow in praise to the Lord as a result of that. Uh, And and so, of course, that's our purpose this morning as well. I I hope that it renews our our faith in the Lord. I hope it renews our our gratitude in the Lord for all that he is for us so that it will stir us up to to true worship of the Lord. Praise of him. Um, So let's just get right into the text this morning, beginning in in Psalm 135, uh, verse 1. And we're going to read through the whole thing this morning. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of the Lord. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and the deeps. He, is, he, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it is who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beasts. Who, uh, who, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Basham, Bashan. Uh, And all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever, your renown, O Lord, through all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, they have eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. God, you are great and there is no other place we'd rather be than with your people singing your praises and opening our hearts to your holy word this morning. We ask that you enlighten our minds today so that we can understand this psalm. Help us to see just how great you are and to know and to confess what idols have been created in the factories of our hearts so that we may see that you and you alone are the true God of eternal hope, both here and now and for all time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me give you a simple outline from this. I should have put it in the bulletin, but I failed to do so. <clears throat> uh, the simple outline is this. It begins with a call to God's people to praise Him. That's the first part. And then the very last part is a call to God's people to praise Him. And then everything in between those two sections are the reasons that we should praise God. And there's a few of them we'll see there. It's, a, uh, it's really this beautiful layout here. It's kind of like uh, a father telling his, his children, you know, Honor your mother because she's wonderful, because she gave birth to you, because she makes sure you're fed and clothed properly. She, uh, she taught you most of what you know. She cares deeply for, uh, for you, and so honor her and, and so respect her. That's kind of the idea that's going on here, only it's much larger because God is the one who is being praised and honored in this sense. So then as, as verse 1 begins with our, our English phrase, praise the Lord, the, the whole phrase is actually from a single Hebrew word, uh, hallelujah, which Ryan was reading in the actual Hebrew this morning. That was one of the words he knows. Uh, he knows a lot more than that, but he confirmed that one. Uh, anyway, that, that word and that phrase appear in this psalm right here seven times. We see it two times right here at the beginning and then five times on the end. And so uh, in the Hebrew, it's this hallelujah, hallelujah. And then at the end, you know, five times going through that, Uh, That's what we're seeing here. That is the major theme that's going on. But in verse 3, we we see the reasons that God is worthy to be praised uh, begin here. And he states, first of all, the Lord is good. And and of course, the psalmist means by that "The, the Lord is good to me. The Lord is good to us. It, it, it has more content than that. And, and, and be careful, we see that and sometimes it's just a throwaway phrase for us. It's not a throwaway phrase for the psalmist here. You know, think about your, your own belief, really. Do you believe that the Lord is good to you? I think a lot of Christians can confess the first part, he's good, but really struggle with the idea that he's good to me because we look at the circumstances in our lives and we feel like maybe, maybe he's not so good to me. And so there's this question, do you believe that the Lord is good to you? And and we'll stop right there because we're going to get into it a bit next week in a really interesting psalm. Uh, But for now, you just got to understand that the psalmist wishes to convince you, his readers, all of Israel, uh, even us today, that's God's purposes here. Wishes to convince you uh, that indeed God is good because he knows that if you believe that, then praise will come easy. It, It will flow out of you naturally. And if you don't believe that, it it simply won't. Words might come out, but true praise and gratitude will will not there. And so then even as you you face challenges in your life, you've got to be reminding yourself, you know, internally in your mind, even verbally if you've got to speak it out, you know, to say that that phrase, "The, the, the Lord is good. One of the most encouraging things I've ever heard is after I've I've been with Christians who are suffering, it's just to hear them say that phrase, yes, this, this, and this, but the Lord is good. And, and just a highlighting some of the amazing things the Lord has, has done for them. <clears throat> That's uh, where our psalm goes as well here, as far as pointing to what the Lord has done that is, that is so good. Uh, he, he's just... Just as we might be coming to this, right, and asking, okay, so, so how is the Lord good? We can't just say that, but how is He good? And, and the verse, first answer is there in verse 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. He, he's teaching them, he, he's teaching them that God chose you and you belong to Him, you're, you're His. Now, now, don't get caught up in all the theological aspects of that right here. There's a time for that, but not right here, because I I just want you to understand that there's a very intimate love idea in this statement that you are God's people. And and, and it's beautiful, in fact, that Jacob's the example that's given here because uh, anything you know about Jacob will will really explain just how amazing it is that God's choosing to love them. Uh, Of course, Jacob's the one who later gets called Israel, and and that's the name by which all the people of God, Israel at the time, the whole nation, takes that name as their own. And it's significant that he uses Jacob as an example because uh, we, we know it wasn't because of anything Jacob did, right? Jacob's not really the guy you look at in Scripture like, I, I want to be like Jacob, uh, you know, a, a deceiver, and, and all sorts of things that go on with him. Uh, he does nothing to earn God's choosing, nothing to earn God's love. And in fact, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, we, we read this about it. Uh, it's the example there, too. It says, Though Jacob and Esau were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And so the Lord is is worthy of Israel's praise, is what he's saying here, is worthy of our praise as well, because in love the Lord has chosen them. They are his special people. If your faith is in Christ, you are his special people. After all, in, in John 6, 44, uh, it teaches us, Christ speaking, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sends him draws me. There is love in that statement. Um, the, the Lord has shown his special covenant love to you by making you his possession. That's an amazing thing. And then in verses 5 through 7, we see that God is worthy of our praise. And the second reason, but because he's sovereign. It's statements in Scripture like verse six here before you that, that really make me believe that God is absolutely sovereign. You, you see what it says. You can you can look at it for yourself. It says, "Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps." This is also a reason for praising God. Psalm one fifteen three speaks of the the same, very similar, when it says, uh, "Our God is in the heavens; He does all that He pleases." I mean, can you imagine for a moment, if by your will, you could accomplish anything you want? If you could control the surroundings around you? Can you imagine how you'd never be frustrated again? That's the Lord God. Never frustrated, right? Because he can control that. I also love this phrase. Do you know it's the most common phrase in the Westminster Confession? our doctrinal statement or at least the general phrase here is that it's essentially what we see here in verse six if you read the confession you'll find over and over again phrases like it pleased the lord or god was pleased or some variation of that and as the confession is working through step by step or chapter by chapter uh it's showing what god has done to redeem you and i and it begins to preference over and over again it pleased the lord god did this because it pleased him Verse 7 here poetically lays out God's control over the weather. Uh, you can listen to it. He, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the ends of the earth, who make, makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. It's similar to, to the way that Job 28 uh, Job 28 shows God asking his accuser these sort of questions. You know, where, where were you? When I did everything, when I created this, when I accomplished this, and, and there's these questions. Um, there's a, a band called Ghost Ship. I don't know anything about them except for this one song, so um, don't hold me accountable beyond that. Uh, but they take the Psalm 28 part and they render it in this, this beautifully powerful song. I encourage you to go home, turn it up loud, and, and listen to it this week at some point. Uh, but in, the, in this series of questions that, that God is asking, and it's very closely based on Job 28, are, are these lyrics that, when I first heard them, absolutely stopped me in my tracks because it was this uh, intense reminder that God is God and, and I am not, right? And that's what the psalmist here is getting at. God should be praised for that very reason, that he is so uniquely powerful and I'm not. But the words there were, were in the song, though, are, are this. They say, Can you raise your voice to the storm cloud?" Would the thunder answer and ring out, and this is the line that really got me, does the lightning ask you where it should strike? And the assumption there is that the lightning never strikes anywhere apart from the Lord commanding it to do so. That's the power of our God that we forget so often. And that's the point of the psalmist here. God is worthy of our praise because God is unlike all others. He is sovereign over everything. Even the rain and the lightning responds to his will. And then verses 8 through 12, we won't spend a lot of time here, but uh, 8 through 12 are just uh, recounting God's mighty deeds and, and thus give another reason for, that God is worthy of our praise. Verses 8 and 9, you can see they're there, they're remembering the Exodus when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and, and set them free. And then verses 10 through 12 remind them that God gave them the promised land by defeating the inhabitants. You see those specific names there, the victories over uh, Sihon and, and Og. Where these were the first victories that, that God gave this new generation of Israelites uh, after they came out of the desert. They're, these were early victories that were going to be reasons for praising the Lord. In short, they are to praise God because he has fought for them, right? Right. Israel didn't ultimately go in and defeat the enemy. God did it for them. He won the battles for them. God has done it for them. You and I, we we too should praise the Lord because of the battles he's won for us. That, In fact, the fact that he saved us, right? Not from Pharaoh. You and I were never enslaved under Pharaoh. But but he has saved us from sin and from the guilt and the consequences of sin. Jesus won for us on the cross what we could never, ever have accomplished ourselves True eternal redemption, namely. That's a reason to praise the Lord. And then moving on to verses thirteen and fourteen, he speaks about uh God's eternal renown. He he writes there, Your name, O Lord, endures forever, your renown, O Lord, throughout all generations. Renown means remembered. Your name is remembered, right, and honored here we are you ever think about this thousands of years later and we are still praising the same god the only god the lord god we're still lifting his name in praise as we gather together and in thousands of years from now the same is going to be true i know sometimes we worry what's the church going to look like in 10 years or 20 years or 100 years but but you know apart from the lord returning the church will continue on we, we know that to be true Verse 14 says the Lord will vindicate his people. Vindicate just means to to prove right. Right? That we, we like to be vindicated. And so then God vindicates his people by by showing that we, we're right to follow and right to worship the Lord. God will indeed vindicate us when we've been, you know, for the, the times in your life that you've been told that, uh, you know, our, our faith is just old fashioned. Well, God will vindicate that. Or when you've been told these, these morals, they're just incredibly outdated. Well. That will be vindicated. Or or for trusting the scriptures, right? As if it's some opiate for the masses. That's the insult towards us. But the Lord will will vindicate that someday. Don't you want to know that the Lord will indeed vindicate you? And and notice who does it. The, The Lord will do it. You don't have to vindicate yourself. You don't have to vindicate God's name. He will do it. And so then we praise God, not just for what he's done in the past, but for what we're sure he will do in the future as well. It's a praise of faith, right? Looking forward. In verses 15 to 18, we we see this idea that God can make, or that people can make a God out of silver and gold. And the idea is absolutely mocked because these idols are powerless. You listen again to what he says here, what he writes. The idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouth. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. The whole point is their idols are absolutely powerless. And that's, that's plain for us to see, but we, we, we struggle to see this sometimes, that, that we too have idols. Um. David Platt, I I put the uh, quote in your bulletin. You can turn over to the front if you want to see that. But David Platt helps us see that indeed we too have idols. Here he says, uh, we can't fathom a Christian on the other side of the world believing that a wooden God can save them. But we have no problem believing that religion, money, possessions, food, fame, sex, sports, status, and success can satisfy us. Do we actually think that we have fewer idols to let go of in our repentance? One way we make idols, and and this is for us to understand, it's easy to look at other people's idols, but I want us really focusing in on what our own idols are. And one of the ways that we make idols is how we actually view God in our our own mind. Uh, It was A.W. Tozer who famously said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is is the most important thing about us. Okay? Because that's that's your idea of who God is. And that's important because we either worship God as he reveals himself in his scriptures or we worship a false god that we've just made up in our own minds. And far too often as humanity as humans we uh, we wish to worship a false god that we find really really fits our needs better or fits into our culture better or, or somehow it's just easier. For us to worship and you see the problem with with false gods even even those that we create just in our own minds is that ultimately they're not gods at all and we might worship them like they are but they're not gods they're, they're powerless that that's what Romans1 through 23 is is condemning when, when Paul there writes this he says for although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. You see, it's not that they don't worship. It's not that they don't worship, you know, lowercase God. It's, it's that they've created this false idea about who God is, and, and then they've worshipped that false idea. <clears throat> I think that's why, even in our modern culture, idolatry is incredibly tempting to us. Because, in, in, in some, some sick sense, even if it's subconscious, in some sense, we believe that it sets us free from the true God who created us. It takes us out from under his authority, that, that rightful place of authority he has over us. See, idolatry is the fullest rebellion of the creature against our creator. That's what idolatry is. Uh, Joe, Joe Rigney in his fantastic book, Things of Earth, puts it this way. This one's also in your bulletin uh, at the very beginning. He says, The heart of idolatry, then, is that we receive creation not as a gift, but as a God. We set the Creator and His creation in the scale of values, and we worship the gifts over the giver. Creation, rather than being a means of enjoy- enjoying the Creator, becomes His rival. We become fixated and entranced on God's good gifts, seeking in them something that we will never be able to find. Sex, food, approval, wealth, family, friends, job, nature, government, all of these become God's rival. All of these good gifts become God's rival when we hold them up as a god, when we worship them. Or as G.K. Chesterton said, using a much smaller economy of words, Idolatry is when you worship what you should use and use what you should worship. And as verse 18 points out here, those who trust in these idols become just like them, just as empty and hopeless as their idols. And so you and I need to know how to assess our lives, right? How do I identify my idols? And so listen, plain and simple, we worship who or what we value most. That's not a, a thing. It's not an argument to say that's the case. That just is the way we do it. Whatever we value most, we naturally worship. And so that's the question. You've got to ask yourself, you know, Brian, only put your name there. Don't say Brian. That will be weird. But uh, Brian, what do you value most? And you've got to ask yourself this question. No one else is going to be able to ultimately do this for you. What do you value most? And if you need follow-up questions to know what I'm talking about here, maybe something like, uh, who or what gets the best of your time? Or, or what am I willing to, to sin to obtain? Right? Or, or what causes me anger when I don't get it? Or if it doesn't go my way, then I might just throw a, a tantrum of some sort. What, what's, what might be, you know, what's causing you the most anxiety in your life, right? That, that's a way to kind of bring it to light. To, and, and eventually we begin to see who or what we are worshiping. And it, it could be a good thing. It usually is a good thing, right? A, a great relationship, a, a job that God has given you, a child, a gift of God has given you of some sort that becomes an idol. I want, to, I want to show you something. If you got your Bibles before you, turn over to John chapter 12 here. <clears throat> um, I'm going to read this to you. And, and as I do, I want you to be thinking about who or what Mary worships and who or what Judas worships here. Okay. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who uh, was about to betray him, said, Because we all know the right thing to do. Don't, don't just identify with Mary because Mary's right. She's so obviously right here. She's so obviously the one worshiping the Lord. Never like it's Mary. I'm like Mary. You um, should be careful that. that. Instead, you might want to ask this. You know, maybe in some ways in your life, you're a little like Mary. And in some ways in your life, if you're honest, you're a little bit like Judas as well. I know that's scary to admit. And that's why I'm trying to encourage you to get there. And the reason is, is because the, the more honest you are with yourself, the better you'll be able to see the changes you need to make, the better you'll be able to see little idols, right, that maybe aren't huge in your life, but are indeed idols in your life. And so, so think about it this way, about this. Jesus is asking this question, right? Uh, most of us, if we were there, would have said, well, yeah, he cares about the poor. Mary, why don't you care about the poor? You know, it would be an easy thing to say he's, he's making a lot of sense, I, I think it's wonderful that as, as John's writing this, we get to see a little bit more brought back into this, that, that we know that his real motivation isn't for the poor. This is what he says to get what he really wants, which is, is he wants this money to be put into the bag so we can skim off the top of it. And if you remember you know much more about Judas, you know that he betrays Jesus later for, for 30 pieces of, of silver for more money. So what would you say is Judas's God? This one's obvious. You can say it all out. Loud. Money... Y'all falling asleep on me? It's money, right? But, but what's really interesting here and helpful for, for me, and I hope for you as well, as we consider our idols, is this. Judas doesn't hate Jesus. That's significant, because we tend to think, if I don't hate Jesus, then I must worship him. He, he's not out to get Jesus, right? He doesn't hate Jesus. He, he actually likes Jesus on some level. He's, he's been going around with them. He values Jesus on some level. He just values money more than Jesus. That, that's the only issue here. And, and so Judas' idol was, was money. He, he worshipped money. He served money. And in fact, the betrayal of Jesus for the 30 pieces of silver is not some hate for Jesus. That's not what motivates him at all. It's actually an act of worship to his God, which is money. That's what it ultimately is. And so then the, the, the question that we need to really, you know, wring our hearts out with is, is, is this. Is there anything today that you are valuing more than Jesus? And, and that's a hard one, right? Because everything starts to come to mind. Even now, I'm thinking, I need to preach faster so we can get to a World Cup game, right? Am I making an idol of that or not? That That's the kind of question you start to ask though. You know, are there any decisions that that you're, that are really, you know, decisions that are really acts of worship to a false god. I mean, look at your life. In what ways are you, are you making acts of worship to some false god in your life? An idol. Anything that you believe, if I can obtain this, then, then I will be satisfied. Again, you know, maybe some relationship. I'm just throwing some ideas out to help stir your, your, your mind, hopefully. Some, maybe it's some technological gadgets. Or a certain car. I, I totally understand the car thing for the first time in my life. I, I sat in a Tesla this week and, and I wanted that thing. Now luckily I can't obtain that thing no matter what I do. But um, I understand that. They, these are the things that come into our mind. But maybe it's something else. Maybe it's some career status or a promotion. Or maybe it's just one amazing food experience after another. Right? That becomes the idol that we seek after. Or, or for others that might just find you attractive or fit or whatever it might be. Or, or for a certain amount of savings in your, in your bank account. You know, I don't want to be rich. I just want to be comfortable or secure. Maybe it's something like that. Or maybe it's a sport or a sports team that, that you follow a little too closely. Maybe it's the, you know, the things that aren't so obvious. Uh, just good health. Or a sense of physical security wherever we are. Safety maybe just a, a piece of clothing or a brand of some sort. And these aren't evil things. They really aren't. But we must never worship them in our hearts or, or, or with our priorities and the way that we actually live our, our life because Jesus didn't need to hate money, right? That wasn't what's important. He, he just needed to love Jesus more than money. Much more than money. That would have radically changed Judas's entire existence. See this? identifying and, and removing of idols in our hearts, this is an ongoing thing. It's one of those things, you're not just going to walk out of here and do it once today, right? It's an ongoing question. Week in and week out, we've got to be asking ourselves these questions. And uh, it's got to be a Holy Spirit-empowered process in the Christian life. You don't just go out and weed your own idols out. You're looking to the Lord and what He's given you, which is His, his Spirit. And so then, listen though. Mary was satisfied in Jesus all her life. And today, though Mary is is dead, her soul is safely in the presence of Christ, satisfied. On on the other hand, you think about the way Judas' life went. Judas' idol, his his God of money, wasn't even satisfying in in his life. He eventually goes out into a field and and he kills himself. His God, his idol, was, was not great. But that's where our psalm is bringing us around. Our, our God is great. Our God is satisfying. And so as we seek then to, to remove idols from the throne of our hearts, we've got to remember that, that Jesus gives us much more fully, and much more graciously the very things that we are looking for in idols. You're going to them for some satisfaction. And they are not lasting, but, but in Christ, in the gospel, It is lasting. It is real. That's what you find, what you really are looking for to begin with. That's why worship is a response of our seeing God and our our knowing just how great God is. Judas didn't see the greatness of Jesus, but but Mary did. She, She saw rightly, and our psalmist today, he sees rightly, and he's invited all here um, at the end of the psalm to, to see that God is great and to respond with praise. That's where it comes to an end. I, I love the way it ends. I don't know if you noticed when I was reading it, but it's, it's this almost like Oprah-like statement there where he's like, you know, you get a car and you get a car. Everybody gets a car kind of statement. Only what he's talking about is, is blessing the Lord, right? You see what he says? O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Everybody, praise the Lord. And I don't know if you've noticed, but as we've been working through the Psalms, we're seeing this theme over and over and over again as the psalmist comes together and is trying to encourage others. Come along, let's praise the Lord. And you've got to wonder, is this because our hearts are so slow to do so? Is that what's going on here? And yet he does. We, we need this encouragement. There is joy in praising God. Joy for God because God is glorified. And joy for us because it refocuses our hearts where they need to be if we're to be satisfied in all that God is for us. All that, that God has given us the gospel. I guess you got to answer that question. What does it mean to bless the Lord? Right? Um That's a phrase, again, we throw out so much, we sometimes miss. Well, to bless the Lord, it's the exact opposite of what your southern friends mean when they say bless her heart. Exact opposite, right? Uh, Because here, to bless means to speak well of someone or about someone or things that they've done. That's why it's actually the exact opposite, right? We we bless the name of our spouse when we're speaking well of them. You know, she's wonderful. He's kind. She's beautiful. He's handsome. She's compassionate. He's faithful. She's brilliant. He's he's hardworking, and so on. When, when that's the way you would bless the name of your spouse, and, and and the way that we bless the name of our Lord is just to speak well of him. Isn't the Lord great? The Lord has saved me. Isn't the Lord wonderful? The Lord is worthy of our worship, things of that nature, uh, ideas there, right? Anything that equates to me saying, my God is great, that is a blessing of the name of the Lord. Yes, in corporate worship, but also in all areas of life as our hearts just begin to overflow in worship. Not, not all worship is to music, not all worships with hands raised high, not all you know, worship looks like this, but all worship is esteeming God as the most valuable, most amazing person in all of, all of the world, all of history. And so then we, we, we could not be more secure than we are, because one, our, our God is real, our God is sovereign, and our God is good. And all of those things come together, come to this glorious center in the death and the resurrection of Christ. In other words, we have endless specific reasons in our lives to praise the Lord, but the greatest may be, and certainly is actually, uh, that Jesus was sent and that Jesus came and dwelt among us. That this perfect Son of God made a sacrifice with His life to redeem us from our sin, and the result is that we now have this intimate relationship with God our Father for all of eternity. There's nothing more glorious than that. Brothers and sisters, may we Day by day, bless the name of the Lord, because it is worthy of our praise. Let's pray. God, make us look into our lives, our hearts, our hopes, and make us to become iconoclasts as we seek to turn all of our worship, every last drop of it, to flow out in internal and external praise of you. God, be so real to us that we learn to identify false gods before they can set up home in our hearts. Lord we, we wish to make your name and your renown the desire of our hearts. So we ask that you strengthen us in the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit with the Holy Spirit so that we may become a real uh, so that it will become a reality in our lives. It's in the holy name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen.